Hello and welcome to episode 7 of the What We See podcast, the show that opens the doors into Europe's largest software company. This is a business and technology podcast where we aim to share the stories and insights we see from our work with businesses of all sizes across all industries who use technology to achieve their business goals and objectives. Today is actually a special day for this fledgling podcast. I'm proud to say that we're recording in the BBC offices in London. It's a real treat to be here today. I'm in the BBC who produces some of the highest quality audio content in the world. So I'm hoping that some of the BBC quality will rub off onto this production. So why am I in the BBC today, you might be asking? Well, that's mainly down to my guest today. I'm honored to say that I'm joined by Simon Burke. Simon is an experienced retail and consumer executive currently sitting on the board of the BBC as the Senior Independent Director. Born in Dublin in 1956, Simon trained as a chartered accountant before moving to London and joining Virgin, where he held various positions including CEO of Virgin Retail, Virgin Cinemas and Virgin Entertainment Group. In 1999, Simon was drafted in as Chairman of Chief Executive of Hamleys and has also been Chairman of Majestic Wine, Irish supermarket chain Superquin, Mitchell's and Butler's, the pub and restaurant business, specialist retailers, bath store and Hobbycraft, and the National Gallery. Simon is also currently a director of the Cooperative Group and chairman of the Blue Diamond Group, the UK garden furniture retailer, the Light Cinema Group, and the major fresh food producer, Bacavore. Simon is a bit of a Renaissance man, with a diverse set of interests ranging from 17th century art, Byzantine history, uh, flying light aircraft, and a bit of a physics or maths buff as well, as far as I know. So, Simon, you're very welcome to the show, and thank you very much for agreeing to record today. It's my pleasure. Good Great. to see you. Interestingly enough, my last guest on the podcast was also a physicist. Oh. Yeah. Right. So I, I don't know if you're, would you call yourself a physicist? No, yet? I'm more of no. a maths man. Maths I'm, I'm actually yeah. in the last stages of my maths degree that I'm doing to yeah. make up for lost time. It's what I nearly did when I left school and then went into accountancy instead. For and your so sins. It's taken me all this time to get back to it. But here I am. And so. maths and that would be your passion, would you, would you say? Well, it's uh, no, I mean, it's it's uh, it's something I enjoy doing. Mm. And I, I just um, actually my my passion was astronomy. That's what led me to it. Mm. And uh, via astrophysics and so all of that becomes increasingly mathematical the more you yeah, get into yeah. it and so i thought why why not give it a go that, yeah, i loved it at school and actually i still love it now i've discovered yeah. so i'm glad i did that's great because as i said my last guest and tula madden who's the chief digital officer of uh, platus foods all right she trained as an astrophysicist and did a phd in medical physics but never actually practiced in that field she went into pwc and through the ranks there and has been always working in industry since. You know, All right. so. Well, she's gone a long way further than me. I'm, I won't be doing any PhDs, <laughs> I can tell you. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, Simon, as I said, thanks very much for agreeing to sit down and, ha and have a chat today. Uh, we had a brief chat beforehand about the, the stuff we're going to cover. And I suppose the best place I, want, the place I wanted to kick off with was your early stages in your career and it sort of started out as a typical chartered accountant, uh, qualified, got your your uh, piece of paper, and you're working for what is now one of the big four, PwC. Uh, but I think there was a turning point in your career when you 
uh, helped, took up a position working with the company doctor, David James. Yes, that's right. Yes, there, there have been a few accidental sort of moments in my career. And actually coming to London was one of them. Initially, I came mm. here for six months to, to do um, some specialist training after I qualified. And, um, well, ended up staying here all the time since, so that I've now spent more time here than, I, than I've done in, in Ireland. Um, but yes, when I was working for, um, well, Cooper's and Lyburn as it was, mm. I was very lucky to get seconded for a year to work with David, who was uh, one of the country's top company doctors at the time. Uh, and he's still going strong. Actually, he's now Lord James uh, and uh, is thriving in the House of Lords. Um, but um, he was turning around a conglomerate at the time called Central and Sherwood, uh, which was interesting because it had seven businesses, all of which were completely different from each other, from manufacturing mining equipment through to selling cameras. Right. Uh, and uh, and the one thing that they all had in common was that they were all either losing money or had serious frauds going on in them. So it was it was pretty heavy going, but but completely fascinating. Yeah. And after seeing that and being a part of that world, uh, when I went back to Cooper's. Um, I just couldn't settle, to be honest. Um, mm. I'd, I'd seen too much of the outside world and I wanted to be back in it. Yeah. And what sort of role were you going to be going back into in Cooper's? Was it a, an audit role? A no, I, I was in what was called the at the time the investigations department, okay. uh, which is what attracted me in in the first place. Mm. Uh, and that was a Again, it was a brilliant job because it you you would get involved in a whole range of things. So at one end, we did quite a lot of flotations or IPOs, as they'd be called now. In particular, the privatizations that were happening at the time under Margaret Thatcher. So I worked on Jaguar Cars was the first one. And then I did other parts of British Leyland. I worked on um, BT, British Telecom. Mm. Uh, all, of, all of them privatized uh, flotations onto the stock market. Uh, then we'd also deal with situations like takeovers. I did quite a few frauds. Um, and on, at the other end of the scale, then companies that were nearly going bust, we would often be asked to uh, go in and report on their prospects and their business plan and so forth for the bank to sure. help them decide whether or not to keep them afloat. So yeah. it was it was pretty, uh, you know, high, high tension stuff. Um, mm. you, you know, you'd go in and have to do the job very quickly and people would know that sometimes their survival depended on what you said. So right. it, it was it could be quite difficult actually yeah yeah especially if you said things that you know they felt were negative I'd say so, yeah. um so so i went back to doing that and uh carried on and um uh but you know as i say my my heart wasn't in it maybe to the same extent as it had been before and so i was started to look for something um which actually took me quite a long time to find um but then ended up uh, um seeing a job at virgin and you know virgin was a company that uh you know, was, was quite a far cry from a straight-laced, you know, pinstriped accountant working in the city. Uh, it felt very unorthodox. I went to their offices, which were chaotic uh, and uh, in disarray. You know, the person I was gone to see had forgotten I was coming and had to be dug out of some meeting. I was kept waiting. This was six o'clock in the evening. I was kept waiting three quarters of an hour. By the time I came out, it was nearly nine. And during that time, you know, everything carried on. You know, he was getting phone calls. Um, he was making phone calls. <laughs> the business was still running. So, uh, you know... I should have been put off by that probably, yeah. but actually it had a it had a great vibe, and I was immediately attracted to it. I just thought this is this is really exciting. It's a place where things are happening. Yes, it's not following the the kind of strict rules of the city or maybe the accountancy profession would would do, but um, but there was something quite electric about it, mm. and I was immediately attracted, and so I I ended up joining. Yeah. Great, and was 
Bra- Richard Branson part of the uh, in- interview he, panel? He, or the he was. Yeah. He, I have to say, he wasn't the most searching interviewer. Uh, I had to go to his house and... Um, uh, he had actually uh, not been briefed that I was coming. So so I ring the doorbell and he answers it himself. And his first question is, like, who have you come to see? Which was the most extraordinary question. Yeah. So I said, well, I've come to see you, actually. I'm here for an interview. And he said, oh, um, I'll, I'll need to be a couple of minutes. So go in and sit down here. And the here was uh, a children's playroom in which the only seating available was a, a child's chair. <laughs> So I had to squeeze myself into this and there was some kind of cartoon playing on the telly. And for a fleeting moment, I thought maybe this is some kind of test and they're, they're actually watching me on spy cams to see, you know, <laughs> what do I do next? Anyway, I just sat there. Someone gave me a cup of tea and about half an hour later, I, I sat down to talk to him. And of course, because he'd no brief, he didn't know who I was or what the job was or anything. Right. So I had to tell him mm. what I was coming to do. And he listened very politely and then said, uh, well, that sounds fantastic. Um, I I think you'll be great, you know, so go back and tell them you've passed this interview. (laughs) And that was it. Um, uh, And so, um, yeah, I ended up joining and um, uh, spent 12 years there in the end. And was that, do you think, the sort of chaotic nature of it, the long-haired wildness of Richard Mm. Branson and the creative sort of buzz about the place was that what attracted you know played into your interests in the arts maybe or well I liked the informality of it yeah. uh, to be honest um, but actually what became clear is because I, I, I had to do quite a number of interviews and as I went through them what became obvious was that behind that apparent yes long hair jumper wearing mm. slightly shambolic uh, pres- the way they presented themselves they were actually really professional and mm-hmm. they knew what they were doing they were smart people and they were going about their business in a very effective way and in a sense that's that's how virgin often thrived actually it was it was underestimated a lot because of that most notably by British Airways who I think were very dismissive Mm -hmm. of Virgin Atlantic as a competitor and thought they could put it out of business and and did their best to do so in fact but had totally misread the sort of person Richard Branson was Mm. and what he'd be like to go up against sure and as we know you know he was he was the clear winner in that in that fight and so I, I really quite enjoyed that, actually, that sense of, you know, not having to conform to the formalities of a strict office regime. Um, and in some ways it was very forward looking because, you know, you think about the work ethic today, mm. it's actually got much more in common. Flexibility. With, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and, you know, informality, not having to wear ties yeah. and suits all the time, um, you know, offices being kind of temporary and Mm -hmm. much more relaxed in terms of atmosphere and so on all of that was was happening in virgin back then in the 80s um uh, and time it was it was in that sense yeah and it was just a lovely place to work they were really nice people you felt part of a team you felt almost part of a family actually Mm. and uh you know there was no real hierarchy or uh sense of people issuing orders you know things were done in a very collegiate way but as i say everyone was very professional so Mm. they were done well sure which obviously led to their success. That point on being ahead of its time, I think, rears its head again in other businesses you've been a part of, like Super Quinn and Hamleys as well, where that sort of sense of experiential retail was being done before experiential retail was a thing. As, as ubiquitous as it is now today in retail. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think if you talk about Super Quinn, I guess, you know, Fergal Quinn, um, who, you know, very sadly, obviously died recently, yeah. was a genuine pioneer. Um, and he uh, he took a lot of his ideas from America, where they had, they had approached supermarket <coughs> retailing in a different way. 
Uh, and his particular courage, I think, was exactly that, to be ahead of his time in a market where, you know, in the 1970s, um, Ireland was was really about discounting. I, I remember as a kid being brought to Three Guys, for example, which was the, the big popular thing at the time, which was like a warehouse, you know, concrete floor and stuff stacked up on pallets, uh, but cheap. And, you know, the emphasis in you know, Ireland wasn't wasn't in a good place economically in the 70s particularly uh, and so people wanted to conserve their money um, and Fergal uh, rode completely against that tide uh, by bringing a, a sense of you know quality and service and range to people which they wouldn't have seen before um, and was you know justly very successful in, in building his business that mm-hmm. way so yes I mean by the time I came to Super Queen it had, it had fallen on tougher times mm-hmm. um, things had moved on and he had moved on of course he'd mm-hmm. become involved in his later career of being a senator and chairman of Unpust and otherwise and really wasn't giving his personal energy into the business anymore and I'm afraid it told it told very badly yeah. with, with how it performed so my job was to try and re-inject some of that but yes it, it was a pioneer mm. um, and yeah to some extent Hamley's was I mean you've got to go back rather further yeah. for that I think it celebrated 260 years recently wow. um, so it was very much a, a pioneer one of the very first kind of retail operations a destination uh, retail store where you get an experience when you walk in the door yes and that was at the heart of it really and, and Hamley's sadly I often compared it to Orphan Annie it was kind of passed around from mm-hmm. different owners down the years uh, none of whom ever really loved it I think and everybody always bought Hamley's with the idea that they, get, they were getting this amazing brand and surely it should be able to be rolled out in some way or another, either rolled out around the country or mm. around the world or somehow used uh, as a way to create a massive business, which really missed the point because the whole thing about the Hamleys brand was that it was to do with that store in, in the centre of London. And that was to be a magical experience. And people remembered it from their own childhoods and wanted to go back and kind of recreate it. That was a big motivation for yeah. customers coming in. And um, and so the the notion that you just put a Hamleys on every street corner just wasn't workable because you couldn't recreate that magic. You could only really do it in something mm. uh, that was big enough and and able to support enough cost, as it were, to to really put on the performance. And, yeah. and that was the centre of London. So we focused very much on doing that. And uh, and so the money I had, which was not huge, I invested entirely in you know refurbishing and and uh, relaunching that Regent Street store as a really magical experience um, and that brought people back in and I'm glad to say was was very successful and we were then able to sell the business on the back of it yeah. uh, and I think it still is doing that I know it has open stores elsewhere not least in in Dublin actually yeah. uh, but uh, it has stayed true I think in its core business to that sense of you know giving people a, a special experience. Mm. And whose strategy was it to actually expand and grow by just creating more units in every town and city around the well, country. Well, slightly bizarrely, it had been bought a few years before I went there by Phil Harris, who is the carpet magnate. He he ran um, Carpet Right mm. for many years and had made a fortune on that. And for some strange reason, I, I think in the 80s, late 80s, had bought into Hamleys, uh, very much with the philosophy I've described in mind of, you know, it's a great brand, let's see what yeah. we can do with it. And he opened something like 25 Hamley stores all around Britain yeah. uh, in, in all kinds of towns and locations, uh, none of which was able to recreate anything like the, the kind of kudos and atmosphere that the London store had. And so um, 
you know, the 1980s, particularly the late 80s, was a boom time in retail, but it came very abruptly to an end uh, at the end of that decade, and, mm. and Hamleys crashed down more or less into bankruptcy. Um, it was then bought out by a, a group of kind of company doctors who um, floated it on the stock market actually a bit later. Um, and we're trying to turn it around by cutting costs and, um, you know, not spending any money, basically, yeah. and jacking up the prices. Uh, the theory was, well, all the customers are tourists anyway, so they'll, they'll never be Plenty, back. So yeah. why not just charge Screw through the them. earth? Uh, actually, that was completely untrue. One of yeah. the first things I did was a piece of customer research, which told me that two extraordinary things. One is um, actually only 30 percent of the customers were tourists. But secondly, over 50% of the customers were adults who had no children. Wow. Uh, which was an amazing discovery. And of course, when I analyzed it, it became clear why. Um, first of all, we sell a huge amount of hobby uh, type products. So um, radio controlled craft, which are yeah. not really for children. Um, things like um, uh, model railways, model cars and so on, which are often bought by collectors. Uh, dolls and bears, stife bears in particular, were bought by collectors. Um, and then you had a lot of gifting. And, and very often the kind of people who would come to Hamleys were not parents who were needing to save money because it wasn't cheap. But they would be godparents or grandparents or uncles uh, who typically didn't have children and therefore were typically more inclined to splash out. Mm. Uh, and I often said, you know, our ideal customer in the run-up to Christmas was a, was a man in a city suit and a list looking lost because uh, he would be somebody who you could, um, you know, take in hand and would just buy anything. Yeah. Uh, does that type of customer then need the magic and the experience in order to purchase? Well, them? need probably not, but no. they, they wanted it. And they went there because, as I said earlier, often they, they remembered Hamleys from their own childhood mm. as being a magical place. And they all were better to go back. Or because they thought it was the place they would, most certainly get the best range or if they wanted something in particular we had the best chance of giving yeah, it to them sure. and in those days before the internet uh, you, you know your best bet in getting availability was to go to a big specialist store Hamleys was the destination which it was yeah. exactly and that's how they became destinations mm. so so it was a combination of those things and we did have a very good range and we had a lot of really wonderful people working there who mm. were genuine experts in their subject and I don't just mean to sell them but they actually were really knowledgeable about, you know, collectibles and their history and, yeah. you know, the rarity of different things and so forth. And so customers formed relationships with these these people and would come back time and again mm. to see them and, and from time to time to buy things. Like a good bookshop. Some of them, I, I suppose yeah. in a way, yes. Yeah. And some of the things that we did at Virgin in, in selling music and entertainment were quite similar. It's that whole idea of specialism. Mm. Uh, and In people engaging yeah. yeah exactly people engaging with colleagues who really know their stuff and getting advice getting input mm. um, getting information a lot of which is now done online and effectively so but um, you know it was it was very nice to do it in that personal way yeah. in those days As I know we did say we were going to talk about the role of technology in the different mm. uh, decades throughout your career but I suppose it's a good point to follow on from that you know you're talking about pre-internet where the sales staff on the floor had to be the the product expert the, the expert in your range and be able to build that relationship with your customers to therefore create repeat business from that customer as you said all that research is now pretty much done online before you even consider entering a shop a store or you just buy it over the online uh, marketplace either yes. the amazon or the e-commerce site of 
a given retailer. So, you know, does that, that's a different set of challenges for the retailer entirely. Uh, is it any, is it better or worse, more challenging? I think it's very challenging, um, you know, for, for two main reasons. The first is that uh, I think the retail sector generally um, buried its head in the sand mm. uh, on this issue for a very long time. And there was actually uh, often a scenario in, in, a, in, a, in an established bricks and mortar retailer where the online operation would be regarded as, at best as a cuckoo in the nest and as, at worst as the enemy mm. by the people in the shops. So they would see the, the internet operation as stealing business from them yeah. and would be hostile to it and unwilling to cooperate. Mm. And you know, this sounds like uh, the, the script of a drama, but, but I saw it played out many times in retail businesses. And the result of that was that I think the sector generally um, slept on the watch whilst uh, the, the internet retailers grew, you know, literally under their feet uh, and were able to take enormous market share before a lot of the established retailers really woke up to it. Yeah. Of course, there are honourable exceptions to that, but um, the, uh, the, that, that was the trend. Uh, and in some ways, what you're seeing now with the terrible state of the high street and people mm. going bust or having to do insolvency things to, to stay afloat is the consequence of those some of those decisions which go back maybe 15 years in in some cases longer yeah um so that happened and um you know i think that um uh, that was that's clearly a big contribution to um to where we're at today i think the other thing that has to be faced is that in a lot of cases internet retailers don't have to answer to the same financial criteria as their bricks and mortar competitors mm. So many of them are uh, supported by shareholders despite making losses over many years, not just startup losses, but uh, growing losses. Mm. You know, the belief is, I suppose, that even if you're losing money now, if you're building a big market share, then you're creating shareholder value. And yeah. certainly some of the share prices would support that view. Um, but it does mean that, uh, you know, these guys can operate at margins and, and in an aggressive way, which is very difficult for a, an established um, competitor to address and you know people go on a lot about business rates should be mm. you know there should be some kind of tax on online retailing and so on Th these things are futile really um, you know the the direction of customer choice is very clear uh, and um, you know one of the key things that the internet offers apart from the obvious convenience is availability yeah. um, and you, you you know it's just so much easier to go online uh, from the comfort of your home to find what you want, if you know what you want, um, to find somewhere where it is available and get it, rather than traipsing around a whole series of shops in the hope that one of them will actually mm. have it in stock. Yeah, but I think it's a different sort, it's a different activity now going into the shop. You know, it goes back to the experience and to the, the foundations that made Hamley's Super Quinn in its early days and Virgin, and the, the mega stores, the music stores, that they have the experts there. If you go into a store, you want to expect you expect that high level of service. You expect the salesperson to have an in-depth knowledge of the product that you're looking for, and it has to be delivered to you in an entertaining way. I think that's right. You have to you have to offer something that mm. gives people something they want that's not available online yeah. and and they, what they want is an important qualification there because there's a lot of talk about experiential retail mm. and and people put various devices into their stores to try and create this yeah. 
but uh, it doesn't always work because uh, although it might be interesting and and attractive to talk about it's it's not actually what people really want um mm-hmm. day to day but a good example of a of a retail format that i think is um going completely contrary to the wider tide is garden centers now, garden centers are often slightly looked down on by the retail establishment as being quirky and not really quite re- real retail and in some ways that's actually true and is is actually their advantage um, because a garden center now is almost as much a leisure experience yeah. as it is a retail experience so people will go for a day or a half day as a way of entertaining themselves mm. um, so yes they'll buy things and the, the the initial excuse might be well I need a few plants for my 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 garden but uh, actually they will spend quite a lot of time in a restaurant usually or a cafe uh, they will browse all sorts of other things. So typically you can get clothing there, you can get homewares, you can get books, cards, uh, food quite often, uh, food to go that is, as well as, as food to sit yeah. down and eat. Um, and gardening can sometimes be the, an actual minority of what they spend yeah. their time and money on. But those are real experiential um, venues. And so they have been hardly touched actually by the retail, by the internet retailing revolution yeah. at all yeah. and are thriving uh, if you forgive the pun right now, <laughs> in contrast to much of the high street. Um, and, you know, there are examples on the high street. It, it's not only about experience. I mean, another example that I'm involved with is the co-op, where the co-op made a very wise decision about five years ago to concentrate on convenience stores and not to try and compete in the in the big supermarket arena. Yeah. And one of the reasons that that's been so successful is that because people are doing so much of their grocery shopping online now, They'll do that maybe on a weekly or monthly basis, and Big then they will look to yeah. top up uh, on a daily, sometimes or every other day basis. Mm-hmm. And what they want for that is a nearby store, which is easy to pop into on the way home from work. Sometimes to get what you're going to eat that evening. Mm. Sometimes just to make up for you know things you haven't got yeah. through the internet order. And so, convenience grocery retailing has been able to grow really well alongside internet retailing and complements it very well. Yeah. Uh, whereas the big supermarkets are struggling now yeah. to fill their space and, and get the business from them. Yeah, well, it's a really good business model because, as you said, the spaces are smaller in convenience stores, so rents and rates are, are less, you have to mm. hire less staff. And prices are generally that small bit higher in the convenience stores than the, the larger supermarkets, so you're better margins in the in the smaller stores as well yeah i mean in fairness you need the better margin to make the format work because yeah. it's quite an expensive way of of retailing the costs mm. per per pound of sales if you like are higher significantly higher in yeah. a convenience format than they are in a big in a big shed as you might imagine mm-hmm. but uh, yes people are prepared to pay that premium for the convenience. convenience and so i think you know those are two models where retailers uh, you know by adapting can actually uh, thrive in an online world without actually in either case being all that much involved in online retailing itself. Mm. And and I do think sometimes that there's a sense of people trying to hold back the tide um, uh, by saying, well, we must do stuff to revive the high street, we must give tax breaks and so on. None of that is actually going to work because mm. you're dealing here with a fundamental shift in consumer behavior that is is only going to continue um, because the, the, the arguments for it are so obvious and so strong. Yeah. Um, and actually, you're better off spending your energy finding ways to, to make retailing work alongside that mm. than try and fight it. Yeah, but you might have had a strong brand name on the high street five, ten years ago, three years ago, but now I suppose the internet has democratized retail to an extent, so anyone can start a new brand if it gets traction, if it gets a following, 
the established traditional brands that once held all the power can be eroded very quickly. Yes, they can. And and it's often a case of death by a thousand cuts because mm. you get uh, a whole swarm of startups and you know barriers to entry are relatively low. Mm. Uh, one of the things the internet has really fostered, I think, which, which is often overlooked, is a real entrepreneurial spirit. I mean, mm. you really notice here now how many young entrepreneurs there are starting their own businesses. And maybe you hear about them more because the whole thing is in fashion and sure. that but but it's more than that you, you know you can see going back to what we said about offices in virgin uh, you can see whole office operations you know places like we work for instance yeah. being set up really targeted at that market of the you know the tech-based companies who don't have much physical infrastructure uh, usually quite it, yeah. small they don't need it um and you know they they kick themselves mm-hmm. off i'm i'm on a couple of mailing lists for uh, you know, potential investment, angel investment, I suppose, into these things. And I'm I'm amazed at the array of ideas that come forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're nearly all, you know, people in their 20s or 30s. You know, they're, they're, they may have worked a little bit in, in an industry or maybe not. Uh, and they're just kicking this off. And I think the whole philosophy around this has changed. And that's very much been powered, I think, by the, the technology. Yeah. Um, and I think it's a, it's a great thing. But of course, if you're an established uh, giant uh, and all these these guys are popping up and competing with you it's extremely difficult yeah. to fight and i just think it reinforces the importance of keeping the customer front and center of all business decisions business strategies that your business takes because yeah. if you take your eye off the customer there's going to be someone a small startup who's solving that customer problem quicker cheaper yeah better service than potentially your established business is. Well, that's right. And and in this case, I think keeping up with, with changing customer preference. Mm. Uh, and that's where retail let itself down. It's not that retailers suddenly start to give bad service or, or were suddenly uneconomic price-wise. It was that they hadn't perceived the full extent of the change in attitudes mm. and the change in people's priorities. And now, you know, people are nearly all time poor. Mm-hmm. They're not as money poor as they were. Uh, and so finding, you know, ways that are speedy, um, uh, like ordering from home and getting things delivered uh, are hugely attractive. And I think it's the retailers who didn't really appreciate that coming and the speed with which it was coming uh, that uh, have suffered the most. Yeah, I suppose it's also interesting to mention that we are recording a podcast in the BBC that I will publish online. It's a, effectively a radio show. Uh, that doesn't need a radio studio, the equipment. I have a couple of mics here. It's it's very easy to produce and upload, and therefore, like the media business as well. You know, everything has been literally. There's no industry that has not been disrupted through. Absolutely online. right. Absolutely right. In fact, uh, we we spend a lot of time at the BBC discussing this, and I'm often quoting. Uh, the retail experience mm. um, because I'm always urging them to to move quicker and react faster to what's happening around. And so the BBC have launched uh, their podcast platform a couple of months ago. That's now, right, yeah, BBC yeah. Sounds. Yeah. So that's one of the things that we've we've done, and we're we're trying now currently to hugely expand the scope of iPlayer mm. so that it can become a, a much more of a repository of great dramas that you can access when you want. Uh, in much the way that you can on um, services like um, Amazon Prime mm-hmm. and Netflix rather than a catch-up service, which is how it started. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, I'm, I'm really pleased that we're, we're doing those things. Uh, and you're absolutely right. You know, you don't need the infrastructure. Radio 3, for instance, 
uh, is broadcast from this building from a room um, smaller than the one we're in. It's it's probably the size of an average person's bathroom, I would yeah, say. Yeah. All it needs is a microphone um, and... Uh, you know, they don't even have a CD player. It's all all the stuff oh, is is just stored yeah. digitally, and you know they kind of push a button to to play the music, and yeah, that's it. Yeah, and yeah. that's all that's needed. So the array of producers and mm. equipment that you used to see, and you know, three or four rooms and all the rest of it, that's that's all history now. Well, that was the barrier to entry. Even a DJ, a good DJ, had his own or her own record collection, yeah. and yeah. that was their IP. Yeah, that I had my back catalogue of records that I could carry around in my bag or CDs. And whoever had the most eclectic or diverse mix was, you know, the widely regarded DJ. I think when people look back in in years to come on the digital revolution, I think that's going to be one of the most significant things that that it it did was is it just opened the doors to people who wanted to have a go at something and had talent mm. to find their way to do it. Um, and whether you're talking about you know, Instagram stars or you're talking about YouTube stars in particular mm-hmm. uh, in the media world or you're talking about online retailers or just people who are trying to do some business or other, uh, uh, you know, what technology has allowed is is anyone, um, you know, to with a bit of initiative and a bit of talent to have a go and, and, and hopefully make a success of it. And I think that will be transformative in the business world, actually, mm. um, across all sectors and across all activities. You know, it's hit things like retail much sooner than others, but it's now hitting media for sure and broadcasting. You know, it's now got to the stage, for example, where we know at the BBC that only a minority of our audience on television is actually watching programmes as they're broadcast, which is something, you know, when I was growing up, you had no alternative, that's what you did. Um, And if you missed the programme, it was too bad. It was gone for for good. Um, Whereas now, uh, I would say that and I'm by no means, um, you know, a, a young audience member. Um, I would say that I watch, apart from the news, no television yeah. live anymore. Nothing. Yeah. I watch everything on catch up or or on a download service. I do the same, yeah. Um, because it's just, you know, it suits convenience. me. It's yeah. convenience. I can pick what I want uh, and I can watch it at the time I want. That's an interesting point because I was listening to... A, the James O'Brien podcast and they had Steve Coogan the actor and comedian on it recently and they were talking a, pretty much about on this topic and it was an interesting point Steve Coogan made because he was obsessed with TV as a child and in his teens growing up and he was obsessed with entertainers and watching the first sort of famous TV comedians and he also talked about the the importance of this institution socially and culturally to produce, you know, informative, educational, creative content. Whilst that is its its mission and its its uh, is a modus operandi, at the same time, the audience doesn't necessarily have to consume. Where in the past, you ha- as you said, if you if the program was on, you had to watch it on the time it was it was broadcast. Whereas now, if you're not interested in uh, Planet Earth. You don't have to watch it or Blue Planet. You you can just continue watching the Kardashians online and just fill your head with, you know, junk TV in inverted commas. And I don't know, is that a concern for the general public, for society, in that they're not being necessarily forced to watch a diverse set of content? You can consume what you want, when you want it, 24-7, rather than, okay, we have to sit through the news and now we have to sit through this documentary and now we have to sit through an Attenborough show. 
Yeah, I, I, I'm not so pessimistic. I mean, I, I think sometimes fears of that sort of thing are overdone. And, mm. um, you know, it, it, it would be the typical statement of older generation like me to say, oh, you know, young people today, all they watch is celebrity rubbish and yeah. uh, it's terrible. And, and back in our day, we watched documentaries and so on. Yeah. It wasn't really true. I mean, I watched things like, you know, Star Trek and Doctor Who. They were the things I wanted to see. And yeah. I, I'm, I'm afraid I can't say that they're of any better quality, really, than watching the Kardashians or whatever today. So I think I think people find their own level, whatever the medium. But the parallels here with retail are very striking because, um, you know, if we go back to what I was saying about retail, the, the retail industry has not declined. No. People are spending as much money as ever. If not more. But they are spending it in different ways. And the successful entities are the ones that are have adapted to that and found ways to look after their customers, notwithstanding those changes. And I think it's exactly the same in broadcasting. So people are still wanting to consume entertainment, They're probably consuming more than ever, mm. actually. But they are doing it in different ways. And so it's incumbent on the likes of the BBC, whose mission is exactly, as you say, to inform, educate and entertain, um, and still has an absolute duty, you know, from the state and from the public to do this, to find ways of doing it, which are going to be used by people, which mm. fit with their lifestyles and the way they want to consume things. So that's why I think things like changing the iPlayer is so important, because we know people want an on-demand service. But I think we'd be confident that uh, with the BBC's brand and reputation, they will go on there and find things that, um, that they want to see or that they would, would like to try and will still consume good quality programs. They won't just veer off mm. to the, the kind of rubbish end of the spectrum yeah. uh, in the way that people fear. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And I suppose the other challenge is that the BBC have to do all that and transform the business while maintaining commercial viability. It has to be... Well, actually, our challenge is slightly different because commercial viability isn't isn't one of our targets, luckily, because we're funded mm. by the license fee. And, um, you know, one of the great things about the license fee is it comes in every year. Um, but what we do have is a whole matrix of public obligations, yeah. uh, many of which are rooted in the past. Um, so we're uh, obliged to provide a whole uh, combination of services and, and offers to people, some of which, to be honest, if we were commercial, we would be cutting because yeah. they don't have the audience anymore in terms of numbers. But what they do often have is a very loyal and noisy audience, mm -hmm. which will be up in arms if we try to discontinue or even reduce what, what they're getting. And so the problem the BBC has is that it's it's a bit like a, an entity being stretched in 75 directions at once mm. and trying to, from a fixed income pool, which is great on one hand because it doesn't go down consistent, uh, yeah. but on the other hand it doesn't go up much either mm. and and we're having to spread it you know further and further to fund all these things whereas i think if we were a fully commercial organization what i'd be doing is is you know cutting half the things we do in order to invest into what i think are the coming things yeah, yeah but you know public service uh, operator can't think like that you've got to think in terms of the mission you're here to do and how you look after all your audiences mm. So the shipping forecast is here to stay. I think it's. I think it's pr pretty much here to stay. Yes, I can reassure you on that one. <laughs> Our listeners will be delighted <laughs> to hear that. <laughs> yeah, because no, I was listening to a another podcast, um, one of your colleagues, uh, Tim Davy. Oh yeah, he was speaking on the PwC transformation talks uh, a couple of months ago, and it was a brilliant brilliant insight into the inner workings of the BBC and the challenges it faces 
mm. against the likes of Netflix and Amazon Prime, the other content yeah. producers. And he was speaking, okay, he's CEO of the commercial division of the BBC. That's right. And he was talking about how the importance of his division transforming from a, what was once their model was to produce content and sell it, distribute it across multiple channels, rather now it's produce the content for it to be consumed within the BBC, attracting people to the con like planet Earth or blue planet two, for instance, you know, investing in that high quality yes. content. That's your IP rather than produce to sell. Yes, that's right. I mean, BBC uh, Studios, as it's now called, was BBC Worldwide that Tim looks after. Its original brief was just to to take whatever the output of the BBC was mm. and flog it for as much as they could around yeah. the world. That was, and the the idea was you generate income from it to feed back into mm -hmm. to the BBC and support the license fee. Um, but now you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, co-production models and actually investing in things which are primarily intended for uh, broadcast on the BBC. Mm which will stay with the BBC for much longer than they might have done before. So in the in the old days, it was broadcast once. And after that, it would then be freed up onto the commercial market in various ways. Mm. So it might be available to uh, another station, for instance, uh, or it would come out on video or DVD um, and then it would be sold abroad. And you'd have all these these successive windows. Now all that's become very blurred. As I was talking earlier, you know, the extended iPlayer is likely to keep content available for audiences for much longer and so yes the 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 role of commercial co-production in helping the bbc make the license fee go further and compete with the really high production values that you're getting from people like netflix and yeah. and, and others who i might say also conform to the model of not having to turn a profit so you know mm. for now they're they have a free hand to invest fortunes in in um programming particularly drama uh, I, I know that the crown was a million pounds an episode and I, I dread to think what Game of Thrones costs. Yeah. But people are prepared to pay these kinds of sums because it draws in audiences and that creates shareholder value. Uh, sooner or later, of course, they will have to turn a profit from it as well. Um, but we have to compete with that. And so production budgets and the mm. kind of caliber of things people are expecting us to make have gone up hugely. And to try and do that just with the license fee when we're already spreading it out, as I've said, into so many other things, uh, would be an impossible challenge. So Tim, one of the key roles he has to play is to is to encourage people like Discovery, for instance, who have just come yeah. in as partners on natural history, um, but others as well, to to help us, and then they in turn get rights to to distribute these products in other markets. Yeah, it was it's a really interesting podcast, and I'd actually encourage anyone who's interested on that subject to. to dig it out and listen to it it's, it's very good and Tim speaks very well about the business um, something you mentioned there okay you touched on it before as well that these startups are not necessarily bound by the same uh, constraints profit making constraints that more established players are I mean retail in media every industry virtually I see the shareholder they're not, they're not required to turn a profit but they will be at some stage, but you know, I suppose it's more of a macroeconomic question. You know, at what point do you think these companies will be re required to actually turn a profit and you know, shareholders' preferences will change and say, okay, enough is enough of the crazy spending and, and investment. We want to see something back for our, our money. If the share price cl keeps climbing, 
Well, it's a dilemma. I mean, I I had a fascinating experience once when I was chairman of a a, a small tech company, actually, Eagle Eye Solutions. Hmm. Um, And that literally, I joined that when it was three guys in in an attic uh, and it had expanded, did electronic vouchering. And at one stage, we were trying to, um, this was some way down the line, we were trying to raise money uh, Mm. for the next stage of development. And I was working with a very good uh, corporate finance house to help us. And uh, I remember saying in one of the early meetings um, that, you know, it was all going really well and we were growing very fast and so forth. And I said, actually, uh, you know, we might um, we might even make a profit next year, at which point they interrupted me and said, "Um, Simon, you you must never say that. (laughs) And I was a bit taken aback. Um, I said, what do you mean? And they said, well, um, let me put it to you this way, that um, if you start making profits, you'll end up being valued on traditional multiples. Yeah. So your business will be worth, you know, 10 times EBITDA, 12 times EBITDA, whatever figure, you know, is appropriate. But it'll be in that space. Mm. Uh, whereas if you're not making any money, you'll probably be valued on a multiple of your turnover. Mm. And it's going to produce a much higher price at which you can issue shares. And, you know, I, I never forgot that moment because it was a, an object lesson in the in the kind of strange dynamics of this world. And so... Um, I'm not sure I'm qualified to answer the question, actually, as to at what point do you mm. have to turn a profit? I mean, clearly, if your growth stops being um, pretty high, mm. then I think investors are going to be looking for um, profit to come pretty pretty soon and cash flow, because otherwise, why would you why would you want to own the shares anymore? So a lot of these shares are being buoyed up by, you know, still exponential growth rates. Mm. But as we all know, exponential growth can't continue indefinitely. No. Uh, and so they have to slow down at some point. And so I think at that stage, uh, really, if, if, the, if the balloon is not to burst in terms of share price, then I think they have to have got to a point where they are actually profitable and can mm. show uh, good returns on what they're doing. And some, some companies have undoubtedly done that. I mean, even Amazon is now starting to make yeah. significant profits, interestingly, whereas it didn't for years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are many other examples. So I think that's certainly one point at which it happens. And I suppose the other thing is that a lot of this is to do with belief and confidence. Yep. So these companies get these valuations because enough people believe that what they're doing will be economically valuable in the future, which has to translate into is capable of, of creating profitability mm. um, and rewarding the shareholders therefore in a meaningful way. Um, and so so they have to be able to sell that story and the, the, there has to be some kind of date on it, I think, once you get past it. In, in the early years, you don't probably yeah. have to specify a date, but later but, on you do. And the, once you start turning a profit, as you said, there's no real going back then to the, the ways of old. Once you do, you are sort of bound by our, our shareholders are expecting this every year and Th- that is the issue yeah. and and of course that's the challenge that estab- more established companies face in mm. competing so you imagine you're i don't know wh smith or somebody and you announce that you're going to take on amazon mm. and in order to take on amazon you're going to slash all your prices and yeah. you know invest a fortune in technology or whatever which means you're not going to make a profit for the next seven years well you can imagine what would happen to the share price the next day yeah the existing shareholder because the profile of the existing shareholder base expects the previous sort of results and dividends yes. or whatever the, the yes. policy was, but maybe it would attract a whole new cohort of shareholders. Well, actually, often the investors are the same. You, mm. you know, the people who are holding the WH Smith shares and the people who are buying shares in Amazon, for example, uh, are actually the same, same institution. Just they, they have a different, yeah. but they have yeah. a different. 
mentality and they put yeah. it into a different box yeah. in terms of the risk profile and you know the characteristics that they're looking for um, so so characteristics they would find attractive and accept in an Amazon share uh, they would most definitely not find attractive in a WH Smith share mm. so there is a I mean you you could you could take it to the point of logical uh, uh, limits and and say it's it actually makes no sense um, mm-hmm. but but it does make a kind of sense um, but I think it has very much to do with momentum uh, and the thing that really puts value into these kind of tech tech related shares that we all hear about is the sense of momentum in the mm-hmm. in the organization that it is still growing at a rate um, that promises you know some really exciting stuff in the future yeah 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 it's it's an interesting one all right um I picked up an old article that I dug up in my research for this discussion. When you were in Virgin, it was cited as one of the reasons for leaving was that it was good, the company was going to be kept private and wasn't going to go public. Was that the case uh, entirely, or why did the idea of going public, was that so important to you? Um, it, it, was, um, it was actually the division I was running. So at the time, I was running the Virgin Entertainment Group, which mm. comprised mainly cinemas and retail. And I had agreed a couple of years earlier uh, with with Richard that I would take this on and sort it out. It was a bit of a, it was very complex structure and it was a bit of a mess. A lot of the territories were losing money. Mm. Um, And so I said, okay, I'll I'll agree to to do all of this and take these things on and try and make something of them. Um, But I'd like to have the opportunity to, you know, take it public, uh, which was partly about... um, I guess a progression of the of the business and and it becoming an established and maybe more highly respected entity which public companies typically wear and you know there's no getting away from the fact that at the time Virgin was seen as you know in some ways very attractive but also people knew that Richard sailed a bit close to the wind sometimes on mm. on so it was seen as maybe financially not so secure and so being from the background I was, I guess, I preferred the kind of company, public company aura of, mm. uh, you know, being a, a blue chip type type business. Uh, and of course, there was also the very mercenary objective that it meant that I would then be able to realize the, the um, equity that I had. Because one of the problems with being in, in a privately owned business, uh, you, you may have shares in it, but who's going to buy them? Mm. So, uh, and in fact, when I did eventually leave Virgin, I discovered that issue very directly because I had some shares and there was only one person I could sell them to. So he could pretty much dictate the price. Mm. And so, uh, and so that was a, it was a kind of a part of the unwritten contract, if you like, that I felt I had with, with Virgin. And then they did change their mind about that and say, well, no, actually, we're not going to do it. We, we don't fancy it anymore. Yeah. And so it was one of the triggers. I won't say it was the only one. Um, I felt I had kind of got to the end of my time. Yeah. I'd been there 12 years. Uh, and I suppose I was thinking if I don't move on soon, I never will. And Virgin was a very hard place to leave. Uh, it was a very, very attractive place to work. It was, it was in all ways, personally, uh, you know, from a, from a stimulation point of view, from a business point of view, uh, there was a lot to recommend it. And, and lots of people did stay there for more or less ever. Yeah. Um, but I didn't think that was a good thing. And, and so I think they were probably the two, the two main drivers okay. of, of, of moving out. And you were put into a position, a CEO position at quite a young age in Virgin. And as you said yourself, the accidental CEO Again, that's a bit of good timing, good fortune, good luck, right place, right time, and all that. And but then your sort of career took a different direction. That you were sort of more of a chairman role from after Hamleys 
number of years in Hamleys and then a series of directorships and chairman roles. Is that how you all you envisaged your career would? No. No. No, I never had a career plan. I, I have never had a career plan. And I've always followed my nose in terms of just things that I think are will be really interesting or really worthwhile to do. And um, and actually, the two, those two things are connected because I, I did, as you say, become a CEO of a business at 29, which was pretty young. Not not in virgin terms. It wasn't all that young. I was probably mm. average. Um, but but by the wider world standards, yes. Which meant that by the time I got to 49, I'd been a CEO for 20 years. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so um, and I kind of felt I'd been there, done that. And, yeah. and I found the idea of um what's now rather grandly called a portfolio career, which yeah. is where you do a few part-time things rather than one full-time thing. Uh, very attractive because it, I thought, again, it'd be very stimulating. It'd be interesting to be involved in different situations. My first two efforts at doing this were complete failures. Uh, so the first business I went to as chairman was THE, which got itself into uh, a whole series of difficulties that I won't bore you with. THE? Uh, THE was called Total Home Entertainment. It was an okay. entertainment distributor. And you, I worked You don't there. have that on your uh, LinkedIn. <laughs> uh, well, it's only an omission. It's it is on my CV, but <laughs> okay. uh, uh, no, I'm not. I'm not trying to airbrush it out, um, or I wouldn't have mentioned it. But no. uh, it was very challenging, actually. Um, it was three I, the private equity business, had bought into a uh, this distributor. Okay. Uh, it was intended by everybody that they would buy the whole thing, but by a quirk of the contracts and situation, uh, they only ended up buying half. Uh, which meant that they weren't very happy because they didn't have control and mm. the people who were thought they were selling it weren't very happy because they hadn't sold it. Um, and then the business turned down. In fact, the business turning down was the reason 3i never bought the other half. Right. Um, and I was meantime stuck in as chairman. So they were more or less at war with each other. Yeah. Uh, the chief executive then had a nervous breakdown and had to be escorted off the premises. Um, and his colleague took over. Uh, that didn't work out for a number of reasons, uh, and I had to get rid of the colleague, and I then had to run it myself. Uh, so I, I, I'd circled back like Alice trying to leave the looking glass house. I was back being a chief executive again, uh, and it was very hairy for a while. I mean, we very nearly went yeah. bust, actually, and yeah. uh, I was, it was all hands to the pumps to keep it going. But we did turn it around. I eventually found a CEO, and we sold it to Woolworths, actually, um, which then rather sadly went bust mm. a couple of years later. So that was my first effort uh, at being a non-executive. And then my second was actually Superquin, um, mm. because it was around that time that I was uh, approached about going there. And initially, the conversations were that I would be a non-executive chairman. Um, but it became very obvious as, as things progressed that uh, the, the partners I was uh, working with or proposing to work with uh, didn't see me as a non-executive at all. They thought I would run the shops. Um, and that's what the job needed. And I had a, a COO uh, with me who, who certainly helped, but, uh, but I found myself basically working pretty much full time doing that. Okay. Uh, and, uh, you know, again, I was signed up for a couple of years, but um, at the time that I came due to leave uh, was just about the moment when the Celtic Tiger collapsed. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, we were again in a very difficult situation and, well, no way could I walk out at that point so I ended up doing another two years so it was five year stint in the end so that was another failure to become a non-executive <laughs> did you move back to Ireland for that role did you uh, not fully I I was um, most of the time in Ireland but I I actually still had commitments here and if I'm honest you know I had by that stage lived in London for 
let's see, something over 20 years. Mm. And I pretty much made the decision I was going to settle there. Yeah. And, you know, despite the obvious attractions of being back in Ireland at a, a boom time like that, yeah. um, I didn't change my mind on that. So I, I kind of kept a base here. So you're effective. You were, whilst your title had non-exec chairman. I, I wasn't. I was an exec, exec. Well, they call an executive chairman, which is a bit of a contradiction in terms, yeah. really. I was a sort of a chief, chief exec, exec with a different yeah. title. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. So it's. But after that, uh, it got better, and yeah. I did then actually develop more of a, a portfolio, for want of a better term, and that's certainly where I am today. I, I don't think I'd be back running something full time unless something has gone very badly wrong. And the, okay. And as your role as non-exec director and chairman roles. What what does that mean to you? You know what what's the res- responsibility? General, I know it's you can't broad brush it, but in general terms, well, I think it's very different if you're the chairman um, mm-hmm. to being just on the board. Yeah. You've got responsibilities in both cases, but they're very different. So if you're the chairman, then you are the leader of the business. Your first and foremost um, priority is to is to run the board and make sure that the board is an effective body to govern the organisation. Mm. Uh, you know, there will always be a chief executive. And the first thing you need to be clear about is that the chief executive is running the company, not you. Um, So you're there to support and guide and advise um, and to make sure, as I say, that the board is effective in supporting the CEO, but also at the same time is governing the organization. So increasingly, and and especially in the public market, a key role of the board now is to exercise governance uh, and to make sure that things are being done properly and that investors' money is being looked after and all of that good stuff. Um, and so, you know, you, you would tend in, in most businesses as chairman to have quite a big influence on strategy. Mm. So you'd expect to develop that in conjunction with the board and the chief executive. But, uh, and, you know, there are times when the chairman takes the lead. So if, if there were to be a takeover situation, for example, something like that, uh, the CEO would, uh, would, would usually carry on running the business and the chairman would deal with, with, with that side of things. Um, uh, if you're on the board, it's, it's, it's not quite so acute. Mm. You're not so much in the spotlight. And your job there, I think, is to, to try and make a contribution that adds value. And, and that's what I look for, really, is, is opportunities to do that. And I... I still do a bit of retail work, but I do quite a bit of work outside the retail sector now, not least here at the Beeb. Um, and I think one of the, the real um, advantages uh, that I can, someone like me can bring is that knowing retail, I can bring a degree of retail thinking. Because um, retailing is great for the, the kind of immediate contact with the consumer. You're literally dealing with customers and their changing views minute to minute. Sure. And if, if customers don't like what you're doing, you will see the effect in hours. Uh, or equally, if they do like what you're doing, um, you know, you can see it really quickly as well. And so that immediacy gives you a very strong sense of uh, responsiveness to, to changes in consumer behavior, even over short periods of time. And in B2B businesses, particularly ones that are dealing with retailers or dealing with consumer products, I think that's a very useful uh, um insight if you like to be able to bring so i mentioned earlier that in in bbc meetings i've often talked about the retail experience and facing into technology and the changes it's brought that's the sort of thing where i think someone like me can bring value whereas if i join the board of a retailer there'll be three or four other retailers sitting on that board who will know at least as much if not more than i do Uh, and so my ability to make a 
a real difference in terms of contribution is 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 limited. Whereas if I go to a business like you know Bacavor, which is mm-hmm. making food to sell to supermarkets, well, the fact that I've run a supermarket business is very useful to them because I can give them insights into how their customers, i.e., the supermarkets, are thinking and what they'd be looking for in products and and you know why they might react in one way or another. Uh, to to what's been happening in a particular market or a particular case, so I tend to look for those kinds of things now, yeah. as well as things that will interest me and and give me a bit of stimulation and variety as well. I think it's one of the big advantages of doing this kind of multiple role is that you you get to experience so many different situations. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it looks great. <laughs> it, look, it is look, good lucky fun. position there. Yeah. You, you have to juggle. You know, it's it's not always easy. Yeah. Uh, and the worst scenario is when you know two of your flock need you desperately at yeah. the same time yeah, yeah. Uh, that's really hard luckily it hasn't happened to me often uh, and i've been able to juggle things uh, diary management is a major mm. challenge um, and sometimes you know you have to struggle to remember to to be focused on the one you're in mm. and you know if you've got a big problem somewhere else your mind can drift onto that mm. uh, and it's really important not to let that happen because people expect you to be present yeah. when i was training as an accountant my uh, my principal in dublin david fleetwood who gave me many bits of very good advice and good example over the years. Uh, but I always remember him telling me once, uh, I was doing some job for him and um, uh, I was a bit behind where he expected me to be. And he said, yeah, you know, this isn't, why is this not ready yet? And I said, well, um, I'm afraid I had to work on this other client. And he said, let me tell you something. You never, ever tell a client that you're working on another client. Mm. He said, you know, they all know we've got lots of clients, but they never want to put in their face. You know, when you're in the room with them, they're the only client mm-hmm. and they must never think that you're thinking about or doing anything else in priority. And it doesn't matter whether they're big or small. And as you can tell, it's a lesson I never forgot because I'm here I am repeating it. Yeah. Um, and in a way, being a non-exec is a bit like that. I think yeah. when you're in a place, you've got to be 100 percent there for them and not be thinking about, you know, something that's happening in some other in other situation. So that yeah. can be a challenge at times. I'd say so, yeah. And it's it's interesting that you said there about your this was the influence and the impact you can have on a B2B versus a B2C company and that you know, it's a different set, a, a different business model, different cu- end customer, but ultimately the end consumer is the same and that's really the exper- expertise and experience you're bringing to that B2B company, like a Bacavor, like a BBC, for instance. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can't give them any advice that's worthwhile on, on food manufacturing techniques. They know that yeah. inside out and they don't need advice from me on it. But what I can help them with is is to second guess what Tesco might be thinking if we're talking about some particular product range or and how it fits in and mm. how a retailer might see us working for another retailer, for instance, and mm-hmm. the safeguards you'd have to put in to that sort of situation. Those kind of things, I think, are helpful. Um, and um, and just the practicalities of, you, you know, when you run a business like a supermarket business, you know, there are things you can and can't do. Um, yeah. You're very governed, for example, by uh, the need to maintain freshness and, mm. um, and the shelf life of products. And so the whole mentality you have in terms of what you'll stock and how much of it you'll stock and how prominence you give it and so on. A lot of that is driven by the risks of wastage, which is what happens if the thing runs out of date and you mm. haven't sold it. And so, um, you know, just understanding things like that and how they might influence people to respond to an offer we would be making to to a retailer sure. is, is helpful. It's, you have a very diverse 
interesting, eclectic uh, career so far, Simon. And I suppose we could talk for hours, I suppose, into each individual company and past uh, experience you've had. But I know time is against us. Well, if this is popular enough, you can always do a part two. That's, uh, well, if that's an offer you're making, uh, you might be t- taken up on it. <laughs> I know we've been recording for just over an hour now, and I know, you're, as you've mentioned, you have a busy schedule, a busy diary, more commitments. I don't know if you're in the BBC or you're moving on again, but I'd just like to say thank you very much for agreeing to sit down and have this chat with me. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I know our listeners will thoroughly enjoy it. And if you've extended the invite for uh, part two, I'll gladly take you up on that offer and we can record at a later stage. Well, it's been my absolute pleasure as well, Connor. So thank you very much. And um, well, depending on the response you get, you can, you can decide if you want to do another installment. Thanks very much, Simon.